Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, just brief housekeeping here. Uh, as always, if you want to hear about what I'm doing, email is the best way to do that. So you can sign up for my newsletter at samharris.org. I've been spending less time on social media of late, and I think that trend will probably continue. Let's see here. I've got some good people coming up on the podcast. Jared Diamond. I just recorded an interview with him. He has a new book. Judea Pearl, the uh, father of the Wall Street Journal reporter Daniel Pearl, who was murdered by al-Qaeda back in 2002. But Judea is also one of our most celebrated computer scientists. And I've got some other good people coming up soon. As always, if you get value from this podcast, I encourage you to support it by becoming a subscriber at samharris.org. We're currently making changes to the website there, and there will be more subscriber-only content coming soon. But your support is what allows me to do this without relying on outside sponsors of any kind, which if you knew how often I encounter people who are afraid or otherwise unwilling to say what they really think on a topic for fear of losing their jobs or alienating sponsors, you would know what an unusual circumstance you've helped me create here. So again, thank you for your support. Today I'm speaking with two people, Michael Weiss and Yasha Monk. Michael is an investigative journalist who has covered the wars in Syria and Ukraine and focused on Russian espionage and disinformation. His first book was titled ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror, which he co-wrote with Hassan Hassan, and that was a New York Times bestseller and named one of the top ten books on terrorism by the Wall Street Journal as well as one of the best books of 2015 by the Times of London. Michael's a regular guest on CNN and MSNBC and the BBC, and he writes a column for the Daily Beast. And Yasha Monk is a writer and academic and public speaker known for his work on the rise of populism and the crisis of liberal democracy. He's an associate professor of international relations at Johns Hopkins and a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund, and also a senior advisor at Protect Democracy. He writes for The Atlantic and The New York Times, and he also hosts the Good Fight podcast on Slate. Yasha has written three books, Stranger in My Own Country, The Age of Responsibility, and his latest, The People vs. Democracy, which explains the rise of populism and talks about how to renew liberal democracy. Anyway, this conversation was recorded about a month ago. Everything we talk about is still entirely relevant, but the recording date would explain why we might not mention the most up-to-the-minute embarrassments of basic sanity and common decency you might have noticed in the media of late or in your Twitter feed. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation. We talk about the state of global politics, the rise of right-wing populism in Europe, the prospect that democracy could fail in the U.S. We discuss Trump and his political instincts at some length, uh, the political liability of wokeness, the left's failure to rethink support of Chavez in Venezuela, the dangers of political polarization, the attractions of extreme partisanship, cancel culture, and other topics. So now, without further delay, I bring you Michael Weiss 
and Yasha Monk. I'm here with Michael Weiss and Yasha Monk. Guys, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. So, Michael, you have been here uh, once before, but uh, Yasha, we have just met for the first time. And uh, I brought you guys together because I think you are both extremely astute political minds. And uh, I was surprised to learn you two have never met. So I I picture you both impaneled at the same conferences. (laughs) But uh, I thought we could talk about just areas of mutual concern. You know, I, I have a few nouns floating around in my head that I think we can connect, things like uh, liberal and illiberal democracy, populism, Trumpism, all of these trends that make me wonder about the political landscape now, both uh, at home and abroad, and where this is all headed. Maybe Islamism will come into the picture, but it seems that we can take very little for granted right now, politically, and that we're now part of history that in a way that hadn't been so obvious a couple of years ago. So when I say we, those of us privileged to be in the West who could have imagined that they were not part of history at some point (laughs) in our lives. So um, I guess I'll start with you, Yasha. What what do you, first, for those who don't know you, what what do you focus on and what, what are your foremost concerns at the moment? You know, I started worrying about the state of our democracies sort of before it was cool. I saw the rise of far-right populist parties in various European countries throughout the early 2000s. You know, I observed things like the appeal of Sarah Palin in 2008 here in the United States. I did some survey work with a colleague, Roberto Foer, that showed that people give a lot less importance to living in a democracy than they used to, that they're more open to certain authoritarian alternatives to democracy even. Um, So I sort of connected the dots and started shouting into the wilderness saying, guys, we got to be worried about this. Perhaps our democracies aren't really stable. And people said to me, you're Cassandra. And I said, Cassandra was right, damn it. Uh, So that was sort of my life. And then 2016 came, Donald Trump won the United States. You had Brexit. Since then, you've had the rise of people like Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil or Matteo Renzi, uh, Renzi, Matteo Salvini in Italy. And so I've sort of become over the last couple of years one of the sort of chief populism explainers, I suppose. Are you a political scientist? What's your actual background? I'm a political scientist by background. I studied history as an undergrad and then got bored of that. So I did more history of political thought. And then I thought those texts are really interesting, but I kind of want to think about how the world should be in my own way. So I started doing sort of political philosophy. And then I thought, well, it's nice to think about what the world should be like, but actually there's really important things going on and how it's changing right now. I don't think people are seeing that. So now I suppose I'm just a sort of general purpose political scientist. Right, right. Okay, Michael, who are you and uh, what are you worried about? Uh, well, like Yasha, I, I suppose I specialize in catastrophe studies. Um, <laughs> I, I actually, I think if, if there's a theme to, to the work that I've done as a journalist, it's looking at totalitarianism and some of its lesser offshoots. So obviously, I wrote this book on ISIS, which was a deep dive into Middle Eastern jihad and the wellsprings of it, 
both theological but also materialist. I mean, the last time you had me on, we talked at length about why people were joining this organization. Yeah. Not always because they were fundamentalists or they had been ideologically brainwashed. There were a lot of different drivers. It's because of the poor, right? That's the only explanation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is that correct? No. Nutella <laughs> and Grand Theft Auto. That was the big lore. I'm glad we have a meeting of the minds here on that topic. Yeah. And now, I mean, well, actually, I shouldn't say this. I, before I was even interested in the, the region at all, I was more interested in communism, Soviet totalitarianism. So I had done a lot of, as an amateur, I mean, in college and then post-college, reading on Soviet history, Soviet literature, and also the debates that had been taking place in the West about what this represented. I have a sideline hobby in New York intellectuals who congregated around partisan review in the 30s and 40s, and I always find myself coming back to their polemics and their essays. And I never thought after, well, I, I suppose I didn't come into a political consciousness in 1991, but certainly when I was in, in, in university, these things were dead and buried, right? It was The end of history was definitely in the ascendant as a, a kind of conceit in political science, even though there were plenty of people who were pushing back against it, saying this is nonsense. You know, history doesn't come to an end and look at what was happening in the Balkans. And so in, in many ways, I, I suppose the, the tie that binds my intellectual fascination is movements that ought to have been consigned to the dustbin of history, but keep coming back around for whatever reason and reinventing themselves and how they reinvent themselves. So, you know, we, we bandy around words like fascism and now socialism has become a courant again. But what does it really mean? And how are these things being used and deployed in the 21st century context as opposed to the 20th century? Right. I mean, maybe we should define or unpack that phrase, the end of history, which I know you touch in your book. This is due to uh, a very influential article by uh, Francis Fukuyama and then a book by that title. I don't know how he's weathered the disconfirmation of his thesis, but Yasha, do you want to tell us what is meant by that phrase? Yeah, I mean, the idea of the end of history became a sort of meme before we started really talking about memes in everyday speech. And I think a lot of people caricature what Francis Fukuyama was arguing in big ways. But basically, you know, he published this article in The National Interest in, I think, the summer of 1989, saying that ideologically, liberal democracy has won, that the idea of self-determination and individual liberty no longer has real competitors because the Soviet Union has been discredited, fascism has been discredited, the you know, Islamic regime in Iran does not offer an alternative that's appealing to most people in the world. And so even though, as he put it in that article, there's still going to be historical events that will be recorded in the annual chronicle of foreign affairs, you know, in the larger Hegelian sense, in the larger sense of what history is headed towards, history has ended. And I sort of always like to defend Fukuyama because, you know, when I was a grad student in political science at Harvard in the late 2000s, people laughed at Fukuyama. They didn't take him seriously. They didn't take the idea of the end of history seriously. But I learned as not gospel truth, but certainly something that we believed in, an article by two political scientists who would never use grandiloquent claims like the end of history, saying once a country has changed governments for free and fair elections a couple of times, and once it's reached a GDP per capita of about $14,000 a year, it was consolidated. It was right. safe. You no longer had to worry about democracy. It would basically be a democracy forever. 
And that was every bit as much a claim about the end of history as sure. what Fukuyama yeah. ever said. And I think that's no longer true. We now have sort of the theory busting cases that show that you can have democracies that look like that, that turn into dictatorships. What are some of those cases? So the most obvious case is Hungary. I was actually there a couple of months ago. So if you remember the famous speech by Winston Churchill in 1946, an iron curtain is descending across the center of Europe from Szczecin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic. I sort of noticed that you can now drive along that old iron curtain through Poland and Hungary to Austria and Italy and never leave a country ruled by authoritarian populists. And now, in some countries like Austria and Italy, there's clearly still democracy and the governments are undermining that in certain ways. In other places like Poland and Hungary, democracy is really on the line. And when I was in Sopron, a small Western city in Hungary in March, I was struck by the fact that people were afraid to talk to me. You know, you talk to ordinary people on the street and you say, hi, I'm doing a documentary for BBC. Can I speak to you? I'm like, no, 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 no. And you put the microphone away and say, look, you know, I'm not going to use your name. We're not going to show this. But can you just talk to me? What do you think of a government? Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. But if I tell you that, I might lose my job tomorrow. And even interestingly, the people who support the government are afraid to talk to you because they think if they somehow end up saying one critical thing, or perhaps we sort of selectively edit to make them say something that they're not actually saying, they're going to get in huge trouble. So that culture of fear in the heart of Europe, in a country that's a member of the European Union, is absolutely striking. And, you know, it's because somebody came in as a populist saying, all of the political elites are corrupt. I alone truly represent the people. Trust me to solve all your problems. I'm going to return power to you. And instead, what they've done is to abolish independent institutions, to undermine individual rights, to put loyalists into the courts and the state media and the electoral commission. And even for Viktor Orban was definitely elected democratically in 2010, it's now no longer possible to remove him by democratic means. And Hungary is a country that does have more than two changes of government for free and fair elections in the past. It has about five. It has a GDP per capita of just over $14,000 a year. So that's the most striking case. And also what's interesting to me is Hungary and Poland, the, the leadership in both of these countries had come from this anti-totalitarian or anti-communist tradition, right? And they have diverged from right. the inevitable liberal paradise that was meant to, to descend upon all of us to become more right-wing authoritarian populists. But still, within the, the, the context of how they see their national destiny, it's still being fought as though it was 1986, right? The people who informed, the people who worked with the Soviet satellite governments and all the rest of it, that's still used as a cudgel to smash their opponents. So that's another interesting aspect of all of this. These debates were not completely, you know, settled when we thought they were. And, and all of the factionalism and the, the intramural fighting that came out of what was. I mean, you know, you had all of these arguments before 89, like what was the main driver of, of, of dissidents in this region? Uh, you know, the Catholic Church played a role. Some people tend to over-exaggerate that role. Some people tend to discount it. But now, really, it's, it's almost a fraternal split. The anti-communist movement has now shattered into a million pieces. You have your liberals, you have 
your socialists, you have your conservative, center-right conservatives, and now you have, you know, your Viktor Orbans, who are essentially dictators in waiting, if not mm. already so. So how paranoid would it be to draw any kind of lesson from those examples for the U.S.? Like I once had, you know, this was early on when the full hysteria of Trump's election was upon us. But I remember I had uh, the historian Timothy Snyder on the podcast, and you know he's been not at all shy about drawing a very straight line between the example of any failed democracy and the prospects that ours could fail under Trump. He has these very vivid anecdotes of you know people going to the polls for the last time, not knowing it's going to be the last time. You know, and yet, needless to say, the pushback you get from Trumpists is uh, excruciating whenever you you air those concerns. And again, this I, I think the stupor of the end of history assumption has not totally lifted for me. I mean, I, it just it does mm -hmm. feel impossible on some level that. America could ever go down that path that we just sketched or noticed in other democracies. How do you guys feel about that? Well, I think it depends on the exact nature of the parallel you draw. I, I respect Tim Snyder a lot, and I think he's done very important work. I also have some important disagreements with him. And one of those is about how useful it is to draw the analogy to fascism. I think fascism was in many ways quite different. Uh, one of the differences is that a lot of fascists quite openly opposed democracy. They said, look, all of this democracy, people squabbling with each other, this sort of bourgeois idea is really bad. We need an authoritarian government. We need a hierarchical government. And then they paraded in the streets with brown shirts and, uh, you know, little sticks of wood on fire. Now, if that was the situation, then it would be easy to recognize. Aren't there elements of Trump's behavior that echo that? I think the elements are cultural more than, I mean, Look, if if this was really fascism, and I'm not, by the way, I'm not one of these people who thinks, oh, America is going to be forever immune to these diseases and pathologies. No way. It can happen here. I just don't think it's necessarily happening now. And the answer to that is, look at the institutions. We've had an election since Donald Trump. The Republican Party got pretty trounced in Congress. This investigation, which he has tried by hook or by crook to obstruct and dismantle, meaning the Mueller investigation, still made it to completion. The report still came out. Yes, there are shenanigans happening between the White House and you know, the special counsel's office, but we still have a picture of a deeply dysfunctional presidency. So all of his attempts, whether by Twitter, whether by mobilizing you know, the, the real angry, fanatical base that, that still supports him and will support him no matter what he does, American liberal values, American, the resilience in American society has, has, has bitten back. And I mean, I don't, I'm, this is not to say I actually happen to think he has a fairly okay chance of winning re-election in 2020. A lot of that has to do, though, with what the Democratic Party is yeah. going to represent yeah, and I, some I, of their I internal it's, dysfunctions. It's more than okay. At, at but, this point, I would bet on it. I mean, we still do have an independent judiciary. We still do have... Well, so, so I think they are more pessimistic, right? So I think, look, we're talking about Hungary, right? And we're talking about fascism. Comparing it to Hitler, I think, is unhelpful in all kinds of yeah, ways. Completely. Comparing it to Hungary is in some important ways also wrong. I mean, one of the things that I was struck by when I was in Chopron is that people had real fear about losing their jobs because a lot of them either worked for the state or in, in indirect ways, the job depended on the state. They worked for a little contractor who did most of their work mm. for the local town and things like that. 
United States are very different in those ways, sure. right? It's a much bigger country, a much richer country, a country with more independent power centers. In Hungary, most newspapers live to some extent from government advertising. So you can not just take over the important state broadcasting agencies, but you can basically force the private media to follow your line as well by taking away advertising of a criticizer. You can't do that in the United States. We've had a very active press in the last two or three years, but it's done, along with some very silly op-eds, some of the best reporting work that in the history of the United States. And I mean, unlike in Hungary, people, people can't shut up about how much they hate Donald Trump. They're, ah, they're outspoken in their, their criticism absolutely. of this government. Now, at the same time, I do think it's important to see the parallels. And I see two big parallels. The first is in the nature of the movement we're facing right now. So what populists do is to say that they and they alone represent the people. So they promise to represent the people, which means they promise to be more truly democratic. But they don't acknowledge the existence of any power centers independent of them. And they don't understand that people can have different political views and still retain a full stake in our society. And both of those claims are very, very dangerous because it's why one populist after another starts to vilify and marginalize minorities, whether religious or ethnic. And it's why they cannot accept the rule of law, why they cannot accept the existence of an independent judiciary. And so when you look at the rhetoric of Orban in Hungary, of Recep Erdogan in Turkey, or of Donald Trump here in the United States, them calling opposition parties traitors, from calling the media the enemies of the people. This started even before the election, where he was open-minded as to whether or not he would accept the results of the election if he lost, right? right. Exactly. And he was calling for the imprisonment of his, his rival. Lock up. And encouraging people to physically assault journalists who were covering him critically, which is to say honestly. Enemy of the people, a lot of these tropes, which are not accidental, I don't think, particularly, you know, to, to my mind, the most dangerous thing that this president still poses is Bannon is gone from the White House, but Bannonism is still very much there. And you see now he's gone to Europe to try and essentially export his political savvy. I mean, this whole idea, this Breitbartian notion, you know, politics is downstream from culture. It's very important. Like I say, I think Trump is, a, is, is much more effective as a cultural reactionary than as a political one. And that's because as a political neophyte, I mean, his first office was president of the United States. Yeah. He doesn't know how the system works. He is completely befuddled by the fact that he can't simply order his attorney general to investigate his enemies and have that done the next day. He is astounded at the fact that the White House counsel cannot terminate a special counsel investigation into obstruction of justice and Russian interference. And like the snap of his fingers, Thanos-like, this gets done. That to me suggests, and that's not to say that a simpleton or somebody who's completely uninitiated into the vagaries of American politics is not dangerous in, in, in his own right. This guy absolutely is. But again, what worries me more is, you know, the rise in race hatred, the, the rise in anti-Semitic hate incidents, particularly in places like New York. And people argue about, well, is Donald Trump responsible for this? I do think he's created the mood music, the atmospherics for this. I don't like the word polarization because it doesn't really adequately describe what we're facing. But when, you know, he describes out and out fascists marching to the tune of Jews will not replace us as there's some fine people on both sides and, and traffics in this kind of moral equivalent, he is giving license 
right. to the worst elements of the society. He is giving them a sense of impunity that they can carry on in a way that they hadn't ever been able to do before. And now they have the imprimatur of the presidency with which mm. to do it. That, to me, is the most dangerous thing. Although, just on that point, in his defense there, and I, I rarely come to his defense, if you look at the full video from that press conference where he supposedly said nothing to denounce white supremacy, he does denounce white supremacy. The problem with the left now is that they're so scattershot in their attacks on him. You don't have to lie to paint Trump as a racist or a bigot or a grifter or a con man because he's undoubtedly all of those things. But in that case, there's a few things muddy in the waters. One is that you had Antifa very likely initiating the violence against neo-Nazis who had a permit to march, right? There was violence coming from both sides. And that's not to say that Trump hasn't, as you say, created the mood music for racism and white supremacy. But I think we have to be careful on every one of these points because the amount of energy that Trumpistan draws from every error here, they can just point to the video of him him decrying white supremacy. Sure, but this is also a man who took a very long time and tried to dodge at every opportunity, the opportunity to denounce David Duke. And the reason for it was, again, it doesn't mean that he's well, pathologically- well, he, he claimed not to know who David Duke was when we knew that was impossible. Which was bullshit. Yeah. Of but but understand the motivation Duke here. Was earlier. Yeah. This, this is not, and, and to Yasha's point about you know, these facile comparisons to Hitler and the Third Reich and, and you know, really deeply motivated Volk-style fascism. For Trump, it's narcissism, right? David Duke and white supremacists, they support me. And I like anybody who supports me and who flatters me. So I, why am I going to go out of my way to denounce these people, even if I don't really like the cut of their jib? But that itself, again, goes to this kind of cultural reaction. He's built a personality cult around himself. Well, well, that's, I, and, and, and I do think it's important that we don't get caught up in the details of those things. You're right that we have to be very careful about the claims we make. But I do think there's a larger story to how he thinks about politics and how he's trying to undermine the democratic system. Now, lock her up is an incredibly extreme statement. I mean, the very basis of any democracy is that you might think of your political competitors as adversaries who you really want to be. But you have to recognize their legitimacy and saying, I'm going to go and put her in prison is very extreme. The fact that at one point in the debate, he seemed to call in doubt whether he would accept the outcome of the election. There's still a very real question in my mind about whether Trump would have acknowledged the legitimacy of a 2016 election if he had lost it, and what he will do in 2020 if he does lose. So so I think it's important to go back to the larger question we're asking about, okay, so to what extent are we seeing the system under threat here in the United States? Now, you have a similar set of forces pushing against it as in Hungary. You have older democracy and more affluent democracy trying to defend itself. So how is it going? Well, the first thing I would say is that, as you you said earlier, Michael, Trump is not a very sophisticated authoritarian populist. Now, that both means it is less likely that things will go deeply wrong in the next couple of years. It also means that if we get a smarter, more strategic, more ruthless incarnation of the same energy, it might be able to do a whole lot more damage than we've seen in the last couple of years. Yeah. The second thing I would say is that 
if go back and read the New York Times or Wall Street Journal about Turkey in 2004, mm, yeah. in 2005, a few years, three years, even five years into Erdogan, even 10 years into Erdogan being the prime minister at the time of Turkey. And they're all saying Erdogan is deepening democracy in Turkey. He's finally bringing a form of moderate Islam into the Turkish government, overcoming some of the very real discrimination against religious Muslims in Turkey. This is a Muslim form of Christian democracy that's going to give us actual democracy. Yeah. Smart people thought that for many years, not seeing the ways in which Erdogan was undermining democracy and well on his way towards becoming a dictator. So let's not prejudge this. It is not, in none of these cases, not in Venezuela, not in Turkey, does the populace come in and three years in, it's obvious it's a dictatorship. It takes a long time. And so then look at what the institutions actually are doing right now. You both have just put your finger on the thing that worries me. Because to my eye, Trump is amazingly unpersuasive. He's not ideological. He's not a clever totalitarian in the making. He is, as you said, Michael, just a black hole of narcissism. And that is the thing that determines everything he does. And it just so happens that aligns with an authoritarian shtick as a politician. But it's just so astonishing to me that he has succeeded to the degree that he has, and that he has this personality cult around him where it's not even that he has policies that people are so are enamored of. They just, on some level, they're enamored of him as this anti-norm, yeah. you know, or this norm-wrecking machine. And I don't know if it's just kind of the spirit of reality television, where people just like, they just want to tune in for the next episode, and they just like that it's exciting, and, and the liberal media got, has gone berserk in response. But the fact that we're here with someone who so obviously lacks the real tools of political genius and insight into how things work, you know, that's, that's scary. I think what he was actually very masterful at tapping into is, is the amygdala of American politics is to say, the establishment is corrupt. The establishment is cheating everybody, right? This whole system is rigged. And what he did very cleverly, and I don't, I don't credit him with the kind of political savvy that like a, a, a Surkov in, in Russia has, who, who really sort of has a playfulness with which he, he plies this authoritarian mindset. With Trump, though, it was, hey, you know, I'm already corrupt, but at least I'm telling you, these yeah. guys, they're the hypocrites. Don't trust them. I cheated the system. Let me show you how to cheat it too, or let me show you how it really works. And this resonated so well with so many people, not even But that's Trump's such an supporters. amazing point because he, so he's, he objectively lies more than any person anyone has ever seen. And yet that lying showed up as a kind of authenticity. Yeah. He, exactly. He's, that's he, exactly he's honest it. about the corruption in the system. Yeah. Right. It's like, so, I mean, there are I no rules. Watch me break all the rules. I'm the only one who'll tell you that. Primaries was when Hillary Clinton was asked why she attended his wedding. And he was asked why he had invited Hillary Clinton. Right. And Hillary Clinton, with a tortured look, said something like, well, I thought it would be fun. And everybody knows that Hillary Clinton's idea of fun is not to go to Donald Trump's wedding. It's bullshit, right? And Trump said, well, I'm a real estate developer in New York. I got to get along with all these people. So he was actually admitting to corruption of a certain form. He certainly was admitting to taking part in the corruption of a system. Yeah. But he was 
at one level honest about it. He said, well, I did it because I had to get along with influential people. Also, when she said you haven't paid taxes in however many years, he said that makes me smart. Now, prior to Donald Trump, would any American politician stand up at a debate and say, I've never paid any tax money in 10 years or whatever it was? No. But for him, not only was that a, a, a sort of impulse response, but he really does. And, and this, I think he was right about. There are Americans out here who don't want to pay taxes. And they're like, wait a minute, yeah. this guy's a gazillionaire. He claims he made all his money himself, which is not true. He inherited a lot of it, certainly born with a silver spoon in his mouth. But he's cheating the system, the system that has cheated us. Maybe what we need is a con artist and a fraud, but somebody who says, who sort of pulls back the curtain and shows the Wizard of Oz, right? Yeah. Or at least pretends to, which is what he, he really does. He's not actually showing the heart of corruption in the American system. He is pretending to show it. That resonated very powerfully with a lot of people. And, and, and we can get into this conversation later if you want, and I'll, I'll hold my thoughts on it. But what you're now seeing on the left in this country is an attempt, I think, at least certain quadrants of the left, to replicate Trumpism, but from a progressive point of view, right. this sort of populist rise. And you're seeing this all over Europe. In fact, I just read a piece in the FT, Financial Times, about Bannon trying to create a kind of academy for the alt-right in a, an abandoned or old monastery in Europe. Uh -huh. And he said, you know, one of the things that he's alighted upon in Europe is this, this fusion politics. It's sometimes called red-brownism, although that's complicated too for reasons we just discussed, why we shouldn't traffic in these sort of outmoded comparisons to fascism, communism. But anyway, you know, in Italy, for instance, left-wing populism, right-wing populism, they find a happy marriage together in Salvini, right? And Salvini, by the way, people forget. I mean, five, five star, or the, 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 was it Lega Nord? He founded the first Stalinist faction in Milan of that party. So he's had a kind of pro ideological promiscuity, similar to those in the 20th century who made the transition from one extreme to the other. But the point is, Bannon, more than anybody on a cultural level, understands, look, the old categories don't matter anymore. It's not Republican, Democrat. It's not even liberal, conservative. It's who wants to tear it all up and start again. And that can apply just as easily on the right as it can on the left. That's what I think Trump is tapping into. And I think, again, my, to me, the danger is the left overreaction to Trump yeah. threatens to do the same thing. Well, I, there's different ways of framing that. I mean, my fear is in part a kind of left authoritarianism, and we're seeing in Venezuela that that can be very disastrous. In the American context, I think that's a lot less likely. So I'm not worried about Bernie Sanders becoming president. I'm worried about Bernie Sanders being the candidate of a Democratic Party, ensuring that Donald Trump gets a second term. So, right. you know, there's, there's, there's multiple dangers there. One point about the way in which Trump profits from this elite discourse, which is that it's sometimes puzzling, I think, to understand why things that he says that most Americans really do dislike. Mm. And there's good evidence that they dislike. But when he calls Mexicans rapists and so on and so forth, that is not something that the majority of Americans wants to have any kind of track with. But what happens is that all of the people who the majority of Americans hate condemn Trump. And they have good reason to condemn Trump when he says those things. But they look at that and they say, do I like what Trump said? No. But if all of those guys hate him, there must be something right with him. It's a very weird dynamic, and I don't actually know how to get out of it. So I don't think people should shut up about, you know, should stop condemning terrible things he says. But 
there is a strange way in which that helps him because yeah. all of the Democrats and all of the sort of more moderate Republicans standing up and saying, how dare you say this, makes people look at him and say, oh yeah, he is the one who actually is willing to say things and who's not like the rest of them. So perhaps there's something to him. Yeah, well, I, I do see that directed at me occasionally by people who who are smart, but there's a delight. Again, I'm, we're more than two years in and I'm still mystified by this, but it seems like a kind of nihilistic delight in just getting a rise out of his political opponents that his fans like. This notion of Trump derangement syndrome, it's that it's created a situation where apparently there's nothing he could do that's sufficiently odious to cancel the delight that his fans feel in watching people react to it. It's kind of a superpower that or he's in got watching, politically. in watching his critics be proven wrong. Well, yeah, right? well, that, well, that's why I think it's mission critical to never be wrong. But if also, you say, if you yeah, say yeah. he didn't condemn white supremacy, and then we can go to the tape, and he did, that undoes a hundred good things you might have done. If sure. You, if you, I, for me, it was more good people on both sides. I mean, right, the marchers right. in Charlottesville find me a good person. But that's, well, let's, that's, let's, let's take a simple example yeah. of what you were just saying, Sam. I mean, I, I, I was on Twitter, you know, a few weeks ago. And everybody was, as I was reading it, reporting that Trump had said, oh, Boeing, they should just rebrand the 737 MAX and put it back into business. And I was like, well, that really seems ridiculous. And I actually went to Trump's Twitter tweet. And it turns out that he had said we should fix it and then rebrand it, which is a silly thing for a president to say. I don't know why the president of the United States should be giving branding advice to Boeing. But it's very much not what I had gotten the impression exactly. of yeah, no, it's on my Twitter feed. <laughs> fixing and it is the There was definitely a, ca a case when I thought, look, Trump says so many odious things. Do we really need to exaggerate his silly tweet about Boeing to get like a little point on him? Like th this, this really is counterproductive. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, look, the extremists always manage to thrive and exploit the failure of center parties, whether it's center left or center right, to address real problems in a society. You know, for a brief flickering moment, the British Nationalist Party did quite well, I think, in the European parliamentary elections. We're going on, what, 10 years ago now. And, and the reason was they were some of the only people banging on about immigration and its discontents in the UK. Labor and conservatives just refused to touch the issue as too hot button or whatever. Trump, with his comments about, you know, well, somebody's doing the raping and, and his, his, his ridiculous xenophobic remarks about Muslims and, and Mexicans, is tapping into a, a genuine concern a lot of Americans have about rampant immigration or about, well, what's going to happen now that this post-Arab Spring Middle East is on fire and we have, you know, it's give us your tired, your poor, we just don't know where they're coming from or what their ideological motives may be, right? These are legitimate concerns to have. He's just addressing them in, an, in a sensationalistic way. But at the same time, encoded in his, in his commentary is if you criticize me or you attack me for what I'm saying, you're just, you're another exponent of political correctness. Remember, in the primary, the first thing he did was, we do not have time, I don't have time for total political correctness. That's a valid argument yeah. when oh, yeah. made by people who, in good faith, who say, yeah, I think culturally there is something about, you know, condemning a man before all the facts are in or jumping the gun, or as we say on Twitter, virtue signaling when you don't even know what the hell you're talking about. However, this guy is not the answer. He is right. not the antidote to it. Right. So listen, I, wanna, I don't want to spend all the time on Trump, and I, I want to uh, swing to the left and do a um, 
postmortem on on the pathologies we detect there. But Yasha, you said something that had a Snyder-esque echo, at least in my <laughs> brain, which is, should Trump get reelected in 2020? Well, there are actually two things. Well, one, should he lose in 2020, whether he will accept the results of that loss and what that portends? But also, should we get him for four more years? Is there a further erosion of democracy or our institutional norms that you worry about? Or are, is that a paranoid bridge too far? Well, it, 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 again, it depends exactly on what we mean by that. Look, I mean, I remember in 2016 having debates with political scientists, friend of, friends of mine, about what would happen in the Republican Party if Trump won the presidency. And those basically optimists who said the Republican Party, you know, these people have a very different set of ideological beliefs. They're going to rein him in. They're not going to go along with what he does at all. And then... Yeah, I remember those, that. Yeah, what happened to that? Yeah. And then those yeah. pessimists like me who said, no, Trump has more support than the sort of old Republican orthodoxy. So over time, he's going to be able to primary people and to run his own candidates. And it'll be a civil war in the Republican Party for four or eight years, but it may end up being a Trumpian party. We were both far too optimistic. Actually, what happened is that the party grandees just rolled over and flipped. Think of somebody like Lindsey Graham. In 2016, I would have said, well, perhaps they'll primary Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham primaried himself. Well, just just <laughs> think of the fact that Trump could dance on McCain's grave you know, yeah. while he was in advance of his death, right? I mean, just speak badly of a dying man who is objectively a war hero and the best friend of Lindsey Graham, right? Lindsey yeah, Graham, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Yasha, you're here for the Milken Institute. I, I moderated a panel with Lindsey Graham on it about ISIS and the threat to the, the Middle East posed by ISIS in 2016, when Graham was one of the most outspoken anti-Trump Republicans backstage. And I, I've said this publicly, so I have no problem betraying the confidence. It, you know, it was Lindsey Graham on one side, Tony Blair on the other, having a, a competition, an auction for self-pity as to whose party has lost its fucking mind you know, more, the, the British Labour Party or the Republican Party. And Lindsey Graham was saying, I don't understand why we can't just chuck him out of the party the way you all do in, in the UK. Wanted him gone from the yeah. GOP and now has become this sort of vanguard defender of the faith. It's bizarre. But yeah, I quite agree. So, so that's extreme. And then, yeah. you know, if you jump to what's happening with the Department of Justice, I think that's very serious. I yeah. mean, it is now very obvious that we have an attorney general who openly says he's the president's lawyer, as opposed to the lawyer of the United States, yeah. who has, and I, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to get into the Mueller report and all of that. I was never somebody who, I thought it was very important to make sure that Mueller wasn't fired. I never thought that the report would show that Trump is a secret Russian spy or anything like that, but who clearly misrepresented the nature of it. Yeah. You have Trump calling on investigations of his political opponents in a situation in which some of the more reasonable people in the Department of Justice are leaving, in which Barr is quite clearly saying he's just representing the interests of Trump. I wouldn't be entirely astounded if there is a politically motivated investigation into the 2020 Democratic presidential candidate or one of his close associates in a way that can create mm. scandals and so on. Now, I am not saying that Trump is going to steal the election 
in an outright way. I'm not saying that if he loses, he will refuse to leave the White House. He will go and undermine the credibility and the legitimacy of the system all, to, all along. But if he's in power for four more years, and if he's succeeded by somebody who's a little bit more popular, who is a little bit shrewder, I think it would be naive to assume that American institutions can withstand anything. It is interesting, though, and, and I, I mean, I can speak with some insight here because I, you know, I do still report on Syria and, and U.S. policy towards Syria. All of Trump's instincts, complete withdrawal, take the oil, you know, let the Russians sort it out. All of these things have actually been rebuffed, and not just once, but repeatedly. You know, Trump campaigned on military withdrawal from Syria and, you know, frankly, let's just bomb the shit out of ISIS and go home. That's not happening. And I know for a fact it's not happening. Policy that had been that had been cobbled together by the brains trust, such as it is, with the National Security Council and some of his Mideast hands. Remember, there were still, at the very beginning of the administration, some good people in government, particularly at the level of State Department, even to the level of the White House. The only reason this man, I think, wasn't indicted by Mueller for flagrant obstruction of justice is because, frankly, professionals in the White House kept him yeah. from committing overt that's, crimes. That's, that's why irony. I know you don't want yeah. to get into Mueller, but yeah. like that was my takeaway. McGahn yeah. basically said, I'm not going to do yeah. this. Similarly, with respect to U.S. policy, maybe not at the domestic level, I know that's not my bag, but foreign policy-wise, you know, one of his, his, his apologist's main lines is, well, we know he didn't collude with the Russians. We know he's no patsy of Putin. Look at how hard this country has been on Russia, whether it be sanctions or supplying Javelin anti-tank missiles to the Ukrainians or now standing up to Putin's proxy Maduro in Venezuela. Well, yeah, I mean, with Venezuela accepted, where Trump has been quite outspoken, the institutions of American government, I mean, it's very difficult to get things done. Like there is a Treasury Department for a reason. Doing sanctions is not, I mean, the president can dictate policy, but the implementation of it is everything. We didn't lift sanctions on Russia. We didn't recognize Crimea as Russian Federation territory. All of the worst case scenarios didn't come to pass because of the, the, the sort of the, the, the stays. Inertia, yeah. yeah. And that gives me a little bit of hope and optimism. But I do quite agree with Yasha. Somebody more sophisticated who's seen what Trump has done in terms of tenderizing the electorate and making the rise of a real authoritarian possible. That's the real danger because, you know, it's never the first guy out the gate. It's usually the one who, who follows, who, who has, you know, more wisdom and, and, and more experience that you have mm. to worry about. All right. Well, let's talk about the wokeness, the yeah, wokeness on the left that is obviously on some level a response to Trump, but it predates Trump in its concerns. And I think we, we all detect that there's a problem in principle with identity politics, but to point that out is to be convicted again and again of insensitivity with respect to the underlying concerns like racism and gender equality and everything else that has pushed people to identify with some subgroup first and foremost, whether defined by the color of their skin or their gender or their sexuality. And yet, at least to my eye, it is so obviously a losing hand to play in the current environment. I mean, let me forget about the foundational ethics of it or where we want to be in a hundred years as a global civilization. If your concern is just to bar the door to Trump in 2020, amplifying the wokeness is a disaster. 
going to take one narrow case. It is totally possible for decent ethical people to disagree about what our immigration policy should be. And if you're if you are going to stand on the left and equate any concern about immigration or any concern about having a defensible border with racism every time, there are enough people in this country who are sick of being called racist when they're not actually racist who will vote for Trump over your woke candidate who's framing everything in terms of racism and white supremacy. So um, how do you to view the uh, the left? And I don't know if we want to talk about specific candidates at this point, but what are the stirrings on the left do to you at the moment? I mean, I suppose, you know, to your point about the political non-viability of, of maximum wokeness, I mean, you know, Bernie Sanders is not for open borders. He's spoken quite clearly about this. He's yeah. spoken about, you know, a, a, a firm immigration policy, but firm, you know, according to Bernie Sanders. No, no candidate, I think, is running on, you know, this absolute kind of utopian not concern that or, or, or conceit that the United States should just let everybody in, no background checks, nothing. Yeah, look, wokeness to me is political correctness from the 90s turbocharged and taken to really an insane degree now. I mean, I... I was in university, not in the, well, late 90s to early 2000s. There was elements of this then, but it was the kind of thing, it was, it, was on the, it was on the wane then. It was being satirized. You had films like PCU coming out. The Onion was taking the piss. The Onion still takes the piss, thank God. But yeah, no, I mean, we were talking earlier offset about Twitter and the kind of cesspit, almost the kind of Stasi-like mentality that persists when you, it's not even... Look, it's not even about somebody saying something really ridiculous and, and overtly offensive and then having the pile-on effect. It's, it's trying to inject a little bit of nuance or being even at a little variance with liberal orthodoxy can get you pilloried you know, yeah. and publicly shamed. And though, to my mind, the, the one saving grace of all of this, and Yasha, you can speak to this because you've written about it, very online culture, as it's called, or you know, the, 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 the internet wokeness, is not at all reflective of American social reality. So how do we know that? Because I feel that the fact that Trump got elected without anyone realizing he was going to win was an example of the Twitterverse being the real world, and we we didn't notice it. Well, I'm not sure. You know, on the night of the election, Nate Silver said there was a one-third chance that Donald yeah, Trump would yeah. win it. Well, one-third is still significant, yes. but It's very significant. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're not going to agree to play Russian roulette two or three times, no. which would give you a one-third chance of yeah. losing your life, right? I mean, so, you know, the polls picked up what people actually thought. And when you poll people about some of the issues that are at the center of what you are calling wokeness, they don't have very much support at all. So I wrote a piece in The Atlantic late last year about the number of people who think that political correctness is now a problem in this country. And it is about 80% of Americans. And by the way, it is a higher number of people of color in this country than of whites. So, the, so, so the, that, that's a, a point to spell out. I don't know if you wrote this article or, or not, but I, I remember someone, I think it's a, a New York Times piece, that the woke social justice warriors are, for the most part, privileged white people. Yeah. This, are, this is not people of color who are lining up by and large along these no, ideas. Oh, absolutely. It is. So what's interesting is when you look at the people who, in the words of this very, very good hidden tribe study by an organization called More in Common, progressive activists, it's about 8% of the population with those kinds of beliefs. And they are far, far more likely than the general population to be white. 
They're about twice as likely to earn more than $100,000 a year, but three times more likely to have a postgraduate degree. And of course, white people who are very liberal have a fundamental misunderstanding of what the views of people of color in the United States are for two reasons. First, that a lot of black people vote for the Democratic Party for the simple reason that in its current incarnation, parts of the Republican Party really are racist. So obviously, even a, a black person who's pretty conservative in all kinds of ways is not going to vote for that party. So a huge majority of blacks in the United States vote for the Democratic Party. But when you ask them to self-identify as liberal, moderate, or conservative, only 27% of them say liberal. 30% say conservative and 40% say moderate. Right? which is really quite striking. So we need to get out of the categories of Twitter. We need to understand that if you're a white listener to this who probably has a good degree, a good job, the people who you know in your world who are people of color are likely to be pretty liberal because most people in your world are likely to be pretty liberal. But that is not a good stand-in for the majority of people of color in this country. Well, the, and the irony of all this is the term itself, woke, began, I think, in the African-American community. And the idea was it's to raise consciousness about the plight of American blacks, whether it's through police brutality, you know, lack of employment opportunity or the relative economic status as compared to white America. It has now been co-opted or it's, I don't know to, to what extent, and I haven't seen any studies on this, it's used parodically or it's used in earnestness. But it has been co-opted. I remember this because the first time I ever used it on Twitter, you know, a colleague of mine who's black, who's very much part of what, what's known as black Twitter said, I, I, why are you using this term? I said, oh, everyone's using this term now. She's like, "Ugh, it was only a matter of fucking time before they took this from us too, right. you know, in terms right. of cultural appropriation. And yeah, because when you're being beaten up or, or choked out by the cops or being accused of, you know, violent crimes you haven't committed, you don't have time to worry about a third gender being introduced into democratic society. You don't have time to have the kind of ridiculous, arcane debates that eat up so much time right now. I mean, I, so two, two funny things today on Twitter, and I, I couldn't help but relate the two. One was um, millennial college students want to eject Camille Paglia from, I forget what the university or the, the academic, that's it, right? And number two, according to The Economist, millennials are not having sex. I think if millennials are having more sex, they wouldn't be worried about Camille Paglia and what she's written over the course of 25 years in a pretty accomplished academic field. And I guarantee you, you know, the downtrodden and the oppressed, not to use that word sardonically, but truly, don't give a shit about Camille Paglia and what academic organization yeah. she belongs to. So you're, you're quite right. It is a very privileged conceit at this point. So here's something that I think is important for, for, for making progress on these issues, which is that we could spend a lot of time beating up on the silliest manifestations of this extremely online Twitter phenomenon. And that's worth doing. I mean, I think it's important to criticize it. It's important to point out some of the craziness. But I think what's more important is actually to argue about what kind of country we want and to point out the poverty in the vision of what a lot of progressives now envisage for the United States. And it's a poverty of ambition as well. So, so what I see is, for example, in the thesis of the inevitable demographic majority, that's one version of identity politics. Identity politics always means very different things, so I'm careful about using the term. What I see in it is basically saying, look, 
we have, you know, people of color vote for the Democratic Party much more than white people. They're a growing segment of a population. So we just have to sit pretty, sit tight, and 30 or 40 years from now, we'll win every election. Now, I think that's wrong for all kinds of empirical reasons, but we could yeah. go into. Yeah, although I'm impressed with deep... someone who can care about the self they'll inherit 30 or 40 years from now and, and well, be motivated well, it, well, by Well, there's that. a sleight of hand there where yeah. it goes from by 2044, we'll be a majority minority country to, well, we're sure to win the next election if we only mobilize right. that base, right? So that's sort of, you know, they pretend that you don't have to be patient until 2044. I think it's not going to happen in 2044 either for various reasons. But here's the most important thing. What kind of vision is that for the country? Do we want a society where 30 years from now, I'll be able to walk down the street and observe, oh, you're black, you must be voting for the Democrats. Oh, you're white, you must be voting for the Republicans. Is that the society we want to aim for? Do we want a society in which there's a big block of deeply resentful white people of 40, 45% of the population who just get outvoted at every election and who feel beleaguered in that way? Do we want a society in which we have very different cultural lanes and everybody is sure to stay within them and not to borrow from each other's cultures, in which there's not much fluidity in terms of who gets married with each other, who is friends with each other? Or do we want a society in which we've successfully fought against some of the very real discrimination that people are experiencing right now, some of the very real lack of opportunity. But should we, shouldn't we aim for a society where we've managed to address some of those things in such a way that the two main American parties are no longer polarized on racial lines? Shouldn't we yeah. want a society in which the intermarriage rate has gone so up, has gone up so much that there's all kinds of cultural fusion going on, that Everybody is cooking each other's food. Isn't that a much more appealing vision of what we should want in an ideal scenario? And I think if we shift the debate to that terrain, it's more productive than just sort of pointing fingers and saying, ha, 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 you know, have you seen the ridiculous article in Library Journal that says that, you know, libraries should get rid of all of their books because they're predominantly written by white authors. That's ridiculous, but I, but I don't think we get that much out of pointing that out compared to actually engaging people in good faith debate about what society should we aim for? Because I think 90% of Americans, 95% of Americans are with us on the vision of what they would want America to look like because it's a much more attractive vision. It's funny. We've lived long enough to see Marxism become a rather staid and conservative doctrine in terms of its analysis of societies on the basis of class rather than race or cultural conceits or all the rest of it. And I suppose actually in a, in a weird way, Bernie Sanders, because he is very much an old leftist, has reintroduced some of this in, into to our electorate. And maybe that's a good thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, he's he not all that woke, actually. He's not all that woke. And he, he does bring it back to economic materialist matters. And he, he almost doesn't have time for, for the rest of it. I think he takes it a bit too far. And, and there's obviously problems I have with his policies. But in a way, I see that as a form of progress, um, you know, coming back to, okay, how can we all kind of band together as a society and as a country? And what are the real challenges and needs that we all face, regardless of gender or, you know, kind of cultural hangups? But yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, the last two campaigns for president, the slogans were, yes, we can, to which I asked, yes, we can what? And then it was make, make America great again. Well, great how? You know, it's already a superpower. It always has the, I think, the largest GDP. And like, what, what, what are you trying to achieve? What's the vision? There is no positive vision. It's everything that's gone wrong 
that we need to fix. You know, and you know, it's funny because some of the terms that had great currency in the late 20th century, freedom, democracy, you know, Reagan shining city on a hill kind of thing. These are now, I mean, this is the stuff of kitsch. You, you, you titter to even utter them because you have to use them ironically. Well, Yasha's reported on the fact that the percentage of people who think it's important to live in a democracy has gone, has, has been cut in half, yeah. right, over, over the course of a generation. Isn't it like, it's like less than a third now of millennials. Yeah, that's that, right. Yeah. Um, so it used to be about two thirds of people born in the 1930s and 1940s who said it was absolutely essential to live in a democracy, 10 out of 10. Now it's less than one third. Now, it's important to think about what that actually means, right? I don't actually think that young people have given up on the fundamental values of our political system. But I think they don't recognize the good in our society. I always think of that David Foster Wallace joke that he uses at the beginning of his commencement speech at Kenyon about an old fish meeting a couple of young fish in the sea and saying, how is the water? And the young fish say, well, what's water? Right? They're not aware of the thing they need in order to sustain their life. And I think that's similar with people's impressions of democracy. And so they have this, look, this is all not working. Why don't we just go and send somebody in who just smashes it all up? How bad could things get? And so I think one thing that's very important is to give people an awareness of how bad things could get, to make them learn not just about the Holocaust and things like that, but about Venezuela today. Yeah. About Turkey today, how, about, how, how about did China the, today. How did the press, is there an acknowledgement on the left, you know, in the orbit that, you know, Sean Penn and other fans of Chavez circulate that the left got Venezuela absolutely wrong? I mean, has, has anyone issued an appropriate mea culpa or is it just silence? My impression is that when you, when you look through the archives of a nation, it is very active adoration of Hugo Chavez throughout the late 90s and 2000s. Then it starts being sort of running interference in defense of Chavez and Maduro in the 2010. So it's no longer sort of he is absolutely the model. It's sort of, oh, all of these criticisms of him are kind of unfair. And then it flips to, oh, the United States is sort of in an evil way trying to do regime change in Venezuela. But there's no moment at which people said, does it say something about our conception of politics and about our political movement that the guy who we held out as the savior, who we, who we held out as the model for a decade, giving him lavish interviews, describing him as, you know, the guiding light, instituted such a terrible authoritarian regime in his country. And I'm not seeing that from some of the institutions that were responsible for that. And I'm not seeing that from some of the younger politicians who are now uh, running interference with Venezuela. Yeah, believe it or not, I mean, there is a, a current within the, the, the Chavista movement that is anti-Maduro from the left, but these are very minor group of schools. Then there, you know, look, it's easy to beat up on the left and, and that term itself, what does it mean? Um, you know, there are socialists who are against Maduro on the basis that he's running a kleptocratic regime and he's enriched himself and his cronies and his family uh, in a way that Vladimir Putin and, and the Russian elite have done. But no, I, have I ever seen, you know, an article by Noam Chomsky or, you know, some of the John Pilger come out and say, whoops, we got it wrong. No. But then again, I haven't seen an article by Noam Chomsky saying he got the Balkans wrong or that, you know, he got uh, Farsland 
wrong when he wrote an introduction for a Holocaust denier. Right, uh, right. These are people not inclined to self-criticism or mea culpas, right? And yes, now what you're seeing is, and again, here's where the Trump factor becomes a real liability for self-hating liberals like myself. If Trump is doing something, intervening, whether it's through a strenuous sanctions regime or threatening military intervention, as Pompeo has now done, or simply by appointing Elliot Abrams and John Bolton to kind of lead this, this file, it's almost not even about Maduro and his regime anymore. It's the anti-imperialist argument. And even beyond that, the Trump argument has superseded everything. But, but, but this is the most dangerous thing about polarization, and you can see it on both sides. We, we acknowledged it earlier when we said, you know, there's people who just love hating, love riling up liberals so much that they're willing to forgive Trump for anything. As long as it riles up liberals, they are all in for it. And that's disgusting. Now, I think we're starting to have a similar problem on my side of the political line, where we cannot bring ourselves to defend anything that also is defended, often in bad faith, by people on the right. And so two examples, Venezuela and free speech, right? There are undoubtedly some people on the far right who are pretending to care about free speech, even though they would shut down people they don't like, even though they are trying to stop scientists from writing about climate change, even though they clearly are not in any ways coherent defenders of free speech. But instead of calling them out for it and still sticking to our underlying principles, a large segment of the left, or at least of the extremely online Twitter left, is starting to say, well, if Trump is going on about free speech, then it must be evil. And if you are also going on about free speech, then you, Yasha, must secretly love Trump, even though you spend all of your time beating up on Trump. And the same is true with Venezuela. I mean, I think that the administration's rhetoric on Venezuela has been very irresponsible. It's very counterproductive in the Latin American context, because Latin Americans, for good reasons, are very careful about American attempts to influence the politics. I think going into Venezuela with a military operation would likely be disastrous. And the fact that the administration appears to actually consider this is quite concerning to me. But those are not reasons to overlook the fact that Maduro is an incredibly brutal dictator and kleptocrat who just ran, had some people run over with his tanks. But because of polarization. And also ignoring the fact that the United States is not the only one to recognize the president of the National Assembly as the interim president of the country. 50 countries have done that, including such notorious fascist states as Canada, Germany under Merkel, and uh, France now under Macron. So, you know, again, seeing everything, this, this, is, this is also gets to the heart of a, a big problem, I think. You know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union and after sort of the, the fading away of the sort of communist Marxist currents, as an alternative to 20th century politics, what was left on the left? Anti-Americanism was right. the real guiding and galvanizing ideology. And yeah. to see Venezuela or to see Syria through the prism of the United States and the evils that the US is doing, and to ignore the fact that, look, there are dictatorships, real dictatorships, that don't exist in this country but exist elsewhere, where they treat their people in a way that you almost fantasize and think that Donald Trump is already treating us, you know? You can predict the views of a certain range of left intellectuals. And this is not just that 
online phenomenon versus also an academic phenomenon mm. by two things. Would Chomsky pass this test? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So because I view him as the, the he's the guru of so many on the left who may not even be aware that he's their guru. If you go far enough left, you run into Chomsky. So 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 here's the two things, and Chomsky absolutely passes. The first is driven by a mix of contrarianism or jealousy. In Chomsky's case, it would be more contrarianism. In the case of your average college professor, it is more jealousy, which is, well, you know, I can never agree with what is written in the New York Times and the Atlantic, let alone the Economist of Wall Street Journal. So whatever position I hold today, if it comes to be mainstream in those publications, it must be very facile and wrong. And so I've gone through a strange experience in the last few years, but when I started writing about the populist threat to democracy, and our democracies are not st as stable as people think, the left loved me because it was a position that wasn't mainstream. As soon as that view gained wider currency and there was versions of those articles made sometimes by me, sometimes by many other people, in the New York Times and the Atlantic, they said, oh, well, that's so silly and superficial. How can anybody think that? And some of that, of course, is driven by a psychological mechanism, which is, well, if I don't get to publish in those places and that guy over there does, it can't be because perhaps he's a better writer or perhaps he, you know, works harder at it. It must be because I'm being they would, silenced. Because I'm being silenced, yeah, right? Exactly. So that's, that's mechanism number one. Mechanism number two is the one that you, Michael, just mentioned, which is who's in favor of the United States and who's against the United States. And so if you look at what, what, you know, how can you take a position different from what's written in the New York Times and who criticizes the United States, you become a fan of the theocratic regime in Iran and the secular dictatorship in Iraq and the sort of left populist regime in Venezuela and a bunch of other regimes as well, which have nothing in common with each other other than the fact that they're enemies of the United States yeah. and that they are disliked by the editorial page of the New York Times. The masochism that I attribute largely to Chomsky, but obviously now it's been contagious, on the left has really two strands which are woven together. One is that more or less everything of consequence that's, that's wrong in the world, America had a hand in creating, right? So you use that algorithm. And even if you can point to something that is objectively worse elsewhere in the world, which it's hard to argue we had a hand in creating, then you pivot to take the beam out of your own eye first. It's like, like your responsibility is to deal with your problems. Right. You're an American, you're a taxpayer, you're funding our atrocities. You're not culpable for what ISIS is doing, right? but of course, you know, that would right. fail the first test because we created ISIS with our intervention. Or, or it's, it's whataboutism, right? If you bring up Syria, what about Yemen? Well, we can right. talk about Yemen, but let's first yeah. get through Syria. And then it becomes, when you wait enough, when you, long enough, and, and on Syria, I, I certainly have, since 2011 I've been doing this, then it does become an American conspiracy. Right. We are backing jihadists to overthrow the government, to steal the oil, even though they haven't got much oil, and the oil they do have is very poor quality. It's just cockamamie nonsense. But there's another point to this, which Yasha touched upon, which is the psychological motive of a lot of people who they're not necessarily, they don't have a cohesive anti-Americanism as an ideology, but there's a kind of a, a crankishness to this. I mean, I, 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 I joke today when I saw there was this big rally, I think it's called, you know, stand against imperialism in defense of Julian Assange. 
And the people who are attending it, a lot of usual suspects, but you know, one of them believes that I think the Beatles and another popular music recording artist were part of a satanic cult. There's really, there's psychological disorders and psychological pathologies at play. And this goes back a long time. Malcolm Muggeridge, the British journalist, once said he was taken to Moscow in the 30s by Sidney and Beatrice Webb, who were two of the most prominent pro-Soviet apologists in the West. Now have an endowed chair in London School of Economics, <laughs> funnily enough. But um, when he got back, the scales had fallen from his eyes, and he saw what Stalinism was really about. Of course, the Webbs were still clinging to the, the true faith. And somebody asked him, he's like, why do you think Sidney and Beatrice are so fond of this system, which you yourself have seen is so barbaric. And he said, I think it's because Stalin is doing to intellectuals in Moscow what they'd like to be doing to intellectuals in London. You know, there is this authoritarianism on the left, which is also a cultural phenomenon, which is to say, yeah, you know, Maduro, he really controls the narrative. Step out of line or, you know, deviate from the party line, the orthodoxy. And yeah, you know, we actually like the stuff that liberals hate about him. I, I, I like to joke, and, you know, Sam, I'm sure you'll relate to this, that, you know, there's some useful idiots. I mean, there's some people who just genuinely did not see yeah. the cruelty of a Stalinist regime in the 30s and 40s and 50s. I think there's a lot of people who are driven by a fascination with violence of some sort. And so I like to sort of split the kinds of people who hate anybody who's sort of a smidgen to their right up into three categories. The first are the people who would actually try to save you from being stood up against the wall and shot. That's not many. There's a few like that. There's not many. Then I think there's the people who, you know, would be apologetic about it. They really don't want to shoot you. They really don't get any pleasure out of it. But if a revolution calls for it, they got to do it. Then there are the people who would reload the gun like Seamus Milne. Then there's the people who want the revolution because it allows them to put people exactly. against the wall. Exactly. And you can tell. You can tell. Because it goes beyond, well, I think it's more complicated than that, or beyond how can we trust the mainstream press, the neoliberal. By the way, this term neoliberalism. This is, I mean, there was a time when people would identify as neoconservative. That was an actual right. doctrine yeah. and people espoused it. Have you ever met somebody who says, hey, I'm a proud yeah, neoliberal? I, I identifies as neoliberal. I've never no. seen anybody no. take this up. The only people I see who use this term are on the left who think they know what this word means, which is to say basically everything that they don't like. You know, yeah. all of Europe, the EU, NATO, America, market economies, democracies, but as defined by the West, that's neoliberalism. Well, we don't like it. Status quo liberalism, you know, Hillary Clinton liberalism. So I think, I mean, with those, you know, every political term is very capacious and can be used in different ways at different times. And I actually don't think that most words have one true definition. A friend of mine who's a philosopher used to believe that, you know, we can cut nature by its bones. If we only think hard enough, we will have objective definitions of each concept, which just relate to reality exactly. I think that's bullshit, right? So we mean different things by democracy in different contexts and different cultures. And as long as you're clear about what you mean in each context, or as long as we have enough of a shared understanding of it, we can do useful work with it. So I think there are some uses of a word neoliberal when people are being careful about what they mean by it that are somewhat useful. I, I tend to avoid it. But for example, when you talk about the Washington consensus of the 1990s in a particular kind of context, I think calling that neoliberal is a fine choice. But most of the time when the word is being used today, it just means, as you were saying, everything we dislike and everything that 
in any way involves a market mechanism potentially. And in that sense, it is a, a very good substitute for thinking. And one of the things that's, that's interesting about how people use terms like that and generally our political moment is how many people who are supposedly intellectuals and how many people who are academics, how many people who spend their free time thinking about politics on Twitter don't seem to actually want to think. They want to have one creed that allows them to prejudge the world and everything easily. And there, I think, there is a very interesting parallel between some of the stuff that you thought about, like the Soviet Union, and sort of quote-unquote wokeness. And by the way, it's also Christian fundamentalism or Muslim fundamentalism. And it's this. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's a craving for cognitive closure. I mean, it's selecting for a certain kind of personality type, which is really uncomfortable with, with ambiguity or exceptions to the rule. You know, you just, you, you, you don't want, it's like, if you hate Trump, I mean, it's, just, it's something, here's something I can identify with. If you hate Trump sufficiently, you don't want to be confronted with the data that suggests that he actually did something right ever, you know, or he said something smart, or he was articulate for a stretch of several sentences that right. seemed impossible, right? There's a spirit of confirmation bias that people... Yeah, so I think what you're talking about is confirmation bias and trying to get, and trying to avoid cognitive dissonance. Yeah. But I, I think I'm talking about something sort of one level up from that. Mm -hmm. So what does it give you to be an orthodox Marxist in, you know, the Cold War period? It gives you a few things. It allows you to enter any conversation that people are having around you that isn't being led on those exact terms. And to identify, A, you guys are all shallow because you're not seeing the world for what it is. And I'm far intellectually superior because actually the explanation for this is class relations, who owns the means of production, da, 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 da. There's a couple of simple terms you use, and it allows you to be at the vanguard of history, morally righteous, and super smart, very easily, without any actual thought. And that's the same if you are a religious fundamentalist, and who says, you're having a conversation about whatever, really what's going on here is that the devil is, you know, taking advantage of the immorality of people, and da, 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 da. And yeah, it's the same yeah. in some of the terms of wokeness today. Yeah. So you have an unfalsifiable trump card that you can play that meets the demand of any occasion. Exactly. And also people like to be part of movements and like to feel themselves, you know, even if they're alienated in their personal lives, well, actually, that's probably the substitute for it, right? Belonging to a political or social movement gives them a sense of meaning and purpose. We see this on Twitter. I mean... The campism is so codified and, and narrowly defined. I mean, you have Bernie bros on the left, MAGA Trump apologists on the right, and then you know trying to navigate with any sense of independent-mindedness at all makes you a target for sort of everybody. I'm not saying that in a self-congratulatory way. God knows I've, I have my moments of being a bully and wanting to define myself as part of this anti-Trump movement too, but you kind of have to keep yourself in check when that, that instinct comes into play, right? Well, I notice I, I've stepped and, and away. By the way, it, it can be, I mean, the anti-woke left crowd can fall foul of the same problem. Completely. So it's something that, yeah. you know, we all need to check ourselves on as well. For sure. Yeah. With respect to Trump, I mean, this is the most I've talked about Trump in well over a year. I've just stepped out of the fray because one, I find the topic punishingly boring, really. I mean, like it's, it's necessary, but boring. And I stayed on the necessity for long enough to just to feel the full effect of the boredom. 
but it also just it has seemed to be ineffectual to a degree that is just toxic. It is like arguing against religious fundamentalism to the religious fundamentalism. You can only do so much of it before you're repeating yourself and making zero headway. Now, it's not to say that no one ever gets picked off or convinced, you know, and that no point ever matters to anyone, but there's precious little evidence of it in real time when you're doing it. What you get back is this just torrents of criticism that for me, I mean, again, it's, it's amazing how much of this is a social media phenomenon. And if I could just get off Twitter, which I, I think I will probably do, there'd be no evidence of this in my life. Like I, I would just, you know, I would say what I say, and then I wouldn't see the deluge of stupidity. Yeah, people wouldn't come you know, up to you in the supermarket and no one's going to head yeah, with a baseball bat because you... It's you not going to, yeah, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Everyone who shows up in person is nice, you know, everyone in the supermarket is nice. Uh, as a milk toast liberal which is what my enemies consider me, I suppose. Can I suggest a more moderate solution to a Twitter conundrum? Yeah, yeah. And, you, and, and you've the detected my, my all-or-none fundamentalism. I think that's a problem. I mean, you see this phenomenon of various well-known writers grandly proclaiming that they're leaving Twitter, and then two weeks later, you know, suddenly they're they slinking back again, yeah. right? Perhaps if they start by liking a couple of things and retweeting a couple of things and then right. doing their own tweet, nobody right. will notice that they're back. We notice. Hmm. But but I think Twitter is too good a distribution mechanism for writers to give up. Hmm. And I think, you know, I have Twitter followers who, who I love and, and who engage with my work and I want to be able to let them know when I've written a new article or have a new episode of my right. podcast come out or something like that. What's dangerous is having it as the background soundtrack of all of your life. That, you know, you're having brunch with a friend and they go to the bathroom and the five minutes that they're in the bathroom, you check your Twitter notifications and you see the rando who is accusing you of terrible things, who's shouting at you and your mood drops. Yeah. yeah. And one very simple solution to that is to delete Twitter off your phone so that you only go to it when you're making a deliberate choice on your laptop in order to tweet something, in order to check what's going on because something important is happening in the world and then Twitter can be a very useful tool. That's one thing. And the other thing is, I don't think that Twitter is dangerous in the ways in which it radicalizes people. I think it's also dangerous in that way, I should say. But but in a lot of the ways in which, for example, Democrats might lose the 2020 presidential election if they make the mistake of thinking that the world of Twitter is real America and they tailor the message to that because every campaign advisor, every political journalist, a lot of candidates are on Twitter all the time. We don't need to abolish Twitter to get rid of that problem. We don't need to change the algorithm to get rid of that problem. We just need to be aware of how unrepresentative Twitter is and that if you are somebody charged with leading an institution or advising a campaign or being an editor at a newspaper or publishing house, don't make the mistake of thinking that what you see on Twitter is a substitute for understanding the real world. And don't let that very small, highly privileged, more than average wealthy, more than average white, much more than average educated set of people run the country. The other problem with this though, and I think where Twitter is certainly not representative of, of America, the cognoscenti are on Twitter, and particularly journalists and editors are on Twitter. And a lot of what gets reported in the press comes from what originates on Twitter, yeah. whether it's a stupid fight that two intellectuals are having or politicians are having, or God knows Donald Trump tweeting something that is A1 on the New York Times. 
But also it does kind of set the media agenda in a way that I think is unhealthy. And I always think, look, putting aside the cliches of the white working class, which was neglected in 2016, leading to the rise of Trump. No, imagine, I mean, all of these local newspapers which have been shut down or are slashing their staffs, people who are paid to go out and do shoe leather reporting and explain, this is the country you live in, these are the people, these are the problems. Instead, they're all on the internet now and they're all talking to each other and they're all, I mean, it, it is a bubble. It is, it is created this kind of, you know, self-contained zeitgeist. And I think a lot of it is to do with the fact that media has changed. The market has not really reconciled with all of these changes. You know, the sort of BuzzFeed model, which is supposed to be the wave of the future, it's taken a beating. And instead, you know, you've got the New York Times and the Washington Post coming back as a result of Trump. And there's this, at least this romanticism being imbued now in old school style journalism. But that being said, I mean, the kind of people you, you used to rely upon to be the gatekeepers of information and your knowledge about your neighborhood, much less the world, it, it's all disappearing. And it's now you have to go online to find out right. everything. So, I, so here, I just took a picture on my cell phone outside the Venezuelan embassy in yeah. D.C. That, that's this journalism. is truth. Yeah. That's journalism. Yeah, yeah. No, it's not. It's, it's really not. So, Michael, you briefly touched on the state of journalism. I'm, I'm wondering what we think about. I mean, there are two institutions that seem to be wilting under the glare of everyone's understandable concern about Trump, not to mention the direct attacks from Trump and his cult. And that's so-called mainstream journalism, which is, you know, heretofore real journalism, and academia. And I'm just wondering what we think about the health of those two institutions at this point, because both are getting from the left, they're getting forced under the shadow of what, you know, now what's now called cancel culture, where you have, you know, the slightest deviation from liberal shibboleths causing the new, a new wicker man to be built and some scapegoat to be sacrificed really without a qualm. I mean, it's just amazing to me that people are so sanguine about, you know, it's the you have to break a lot of eggs to make an omelet principle. It's like they're, they're sanguine about innocent people, people who are just, you know, misquoted, but, you know, they, they could be Nobel laureates, they could be journalists of longstanding, and they're just hurled from the ramparts, and people don't seem to care. There's never, I never see these people get reinstated. I never see an apology, even when it's truly un, unwarranted. And no one seems to think that many of these people are men, obviously. You know, these men who get inappropriately attacked for, let's say, let's say it's a, a Me Too witch hunt, no one seems to give a thought to the fact that these men have families, Every one of these incidents is leaving a crater the size and shape of which no one seems to care about. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on the state of journalism, the state of the ivory tower. Where are we? I mean, look, on, on the Me Too phenomenon, I think there have been excesses, to be sure. You know, I think I saw the Aziz Ansari episode as a bit of a reach. I know that probably doesn't make me popular to a lot of people, but I did take very seriously the, the Weinstein, and this is the, this is the thing, and, and this touches upon the point of what, what is the state of, of journalism. I mean, look, Ronan Farrow has done incredible work exposing what were rampant sexual assault crimes committed yeah. by prominent men against yeah, no doubt. women. And I, I do think that the majority of these, these cases has been borne out with the reporting 
they absolutely deserve their day in court and, and due process and all of that. But I mean, you know, it does start with an accusation. Well no, well, no, it doesn't always start. So I, I, just to be clear, I was not doubting the merit of many of the, certainly the most famous Me Too cases. I mean, you know, everything anywhere near Harvey Weinstein on the spectrum of coercion and, and violence, uh, of course. But you know, there are cases of, I think it was the case of Tim Hunt, the scientist who simply said something quasi yeah. old school and sexist, like, you know, he just made some joke about women in the lab, you know, reason why you can't have w women in your lab is he'll get a crush on you or something like that. Like it, it was not, I don't think he had any history of being handsy or anything. He just said something that was deemed inappropriate. And the guy was just professionally de yeah. defenestrated. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, he's got a Nobel prize, right? Like there's not, yeah. and, there, and there's no apology. Like the, the thing that fascinates me and horrifies me is that we're living in an environment where no possible apology, like no one could even tell you the size or the geometry of the apology that they would accept. It's like these are crimes for which there is no path back yeah. to the good graces of the people who want to see you canceled. And yet these are the same people who love a good story of a murderer, you know, who's come off of death row and has made his restitution for society. Right, like literally, you could be a murderer and get back into the good graces of the, of these people, but you could not have said the sexist thing that the the old school Nobel laureate said. Well, for for me too, it's about compartmentalization. If a Nobel Prize winning scientist working on climate change or the cure for cancer or the eradication of of AIDS says something untoward or ill thought or even brutish, do I want this person to be removed from his work in science and you know a pathfinding field? No. I remember the whole Louis C.K. example. That struck me because, not that I, you know, I thought that he was innocent and he admitted to doing it, and I thought it was disgusting what he did, and the women had every right to accuse him, and I, I, I think, okay, fine, he had professional repercussions, and, and that was merited. What struck me as really kind of creepy and bizarre about that was, well, that means we must now remove his entire oeuvre of stand-up comedy and all his films and yeah. everything erase him from the the cultural record that i find very disturbing and creepy and look this quest for moral purity in human beings you're never going to reach that utopian coast and by the way well, everything that well, we that value sentence, yeah you just get canceled by room service <laughs> cancel culture by my tequila the quest for moral purity in human beings is is a fruitless one and it's also dangerous because it's going to land us in a position where there is nothing of value anymore because the people who created it are human, human, and or or deeply uh. disturbed or deeply flawed. I mean, when the when the Louis case broke, I wrote this article for CNN of all places, saying, "Look, T.S. Eliot was an anti-Semite. Ezra Pound, whose poetry I don't even like, was a straight-up fascist. Lord Byron, one of the great figures of the 19th century uh, and a great funny hysterical poet." was a pedophile. You know, there would be no I, art. I don't even think I knew that about Byron. Oh, pedophile. yeah. Oh, yeah. Big Pe time. Pedophile as in what, what sex and what age? Both. Really? Yeah. And, and how young? Well, also committed incest with his half-sister. I knew that. Yeah. But, uh, okay. um, but I, no, I guess I forgave him that somehow. Right. But, there, would, yeah. there would be no art. There would be, we, you know what we would be down to? We would be down to Harry Potter and Hamilton. Mm. Because J.K. Rowling and... Uh, Lin-Manuel. Lin-Manuel. Yeah. You know, they're always on song. 
They always say the right thing at the right time. I mean, J.K. Rowling, I would be happy to vote for her for prime minister of, of Britain because she's... Well, J.K. Rowling actually has been canceled by the British left because she criticizes Jeremy Corbyn regularly. Sure. So but, uh, really? Oh, yeah. But as a human being, somebody, somebody who actively but, um, went from being a billionaire to just a multimillionaire by giving so much money to charity. Right. But this is what I mean. I think, where would we be? What would we have left to read or to watch or to enjoy? The, the, I mean, the, the case that I found fascinating was Laurie Loughlin. Because I can see the argument in those other cases about safety and so on. I I don't ultimately buy them, but but I I at least kind of get where people are coming from. But I thought Laurie Loughlin was the greatest elation. This is the college scandal. Yeah. So this is this sort of B-rate actress who's you know in some show on whatever channel it is, and who gets involved in this college admission scandal and. I have no sympathy for that. I mean, I think what she did is terrible. But the idea that she needs to be, as she was, canceled from that show and written out of certain episodes of it that had already been produced because she paid money to get her daughter into USC or whatever, yeah. is just, it's just a bizarre way of thinking about how people have to have good moral status in order to keep the jobs or be represented in the world. So that was an interesting thing. I mean, to get back to your broader question, Sam, I mean, I'm a little torn on how to answer these questions because I think that there are some very bad things going on in journalism and on college campuses. I also think that they don't actually represent the main thrust of it. And so it's hard for me to balance my fears about where all of this might go against the fact that current reality is not yet that bad. So let me give you... Except just one piece I'd put in play there is that we know that it's possible for a very vocal minority to completely define the nature of the conversation because you've got, you know, the majority that's just sitting in terror watching this. And already there's definitely a lot of preference falsification going on. Define that for our listeners. So... There's two concepts which are very interesting in this context, which are preference falsification and the possibility of preference cascades. And they come from the work of political scientist called Timo Kuran, who worked on the 1989 revolutions and how they happened. Because there's a real puzzle in political science, which is why is it so hard to predict when dictatorships are going to fall? Why is it so hard to know whether it's going to happen, when it's going to happen? And his argument is that this is to do with, with the obvious fact that in a dictatorship, you don't want to reveal what you really think. So if you knew what everybody else thinks and you all acted together, you would be able to overthrow and topple the dictator. But you know that if you're the first person who say out loud what everybody thinks, if you're the first person to go and take to the street to protest against the Soviet elites in Moscow, yeah, you're, gonna, you're going to get mowed down. Yeah. Now, once a few people do, the individual risk for each further person joining the crowd is much, much lower. This is, and it's so it's also called depends. a coordination problem, where you, if, if, you, if we could coordinate our behavior, if I knew what you knew that, and, and we were transparent to one another, then it would be rational for all of us to step forward and solve the problem. But the fact that each person is is in a epistemic solitude and just has to decide whether to step forward himself. It, so it's it, not it, rational to do it, so. Exactly. And the yeah. additional component here is that 
as a result, when there's very small variations in how bravery and preferences are distributed, can lead to huge differences in outcome. Because when 10 people go out in the street, are there 20 others who say, now is the moment for me to go out? So that suddenly the crowd is big enough for a lot of people with slightly weaker hatred of a dictator to come out. That's going to make the difference between 10 people being out in the street and being mowed down and the crowd swelling to 1,000 or to 10,000. And that's why it's so hard to predict what's going to happen. So I think that's a very, very persuasive argument about how preference falsification, the unwillingness to reveal what you really think, can allow some people to take over and how you can have radically different outcomes depending on relatively trivial considerations, a kind of political chaos theory. It's very interesting. It is interesting. But, this is a, maybe an unrelated point, but it, it is interesting that once a dictatorship is established or any kind of regime where you have what is, in every case, a tiny minority of people just making life a living hell for the vast majority of others, it wouldn't take much to just seize back the reins of power. It's like, I mean, you see these scenes where it's just, you got like 10 guys with guns cowing a crowd of 2,000 people that if they could only coordinate their behavior, yep. it would all be over in a second. It's a hard yeah. thing to do. Yeah. 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 So that danger is very real. And I, 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 I take it seriously. I also have to say, though, that one of the things that sometimes frustrates me is how actually a lot of campus life is very good and students don't see how good it is. And if they did, it would some of the views might change. So I'm struck by the fact that a good number of my students, for example, probably hold the view that it would be very, very difficult for a diverse group of people in the United States today to come together and have real good faith debate about big political issues in which they obviously bring in the personal perspective, but in which we are not talking about everything through an explicitly identity lens. And yet, that is the experience that I have every time I teach. And so I recognize that my classroom is, I don't like the term in general, but I think in this case it's applicable, a privileged space. But these are all smart kids who are there to learn, who by you, definition... You're, you're a lecturer a in political science at Harvard. I was until recently, now I'm a professor at Johns Hopkins. Okay. Similar so, environment. Similar crowd, yeah. But you had the same, but I mean, Yale was one of the, the epicenters of... But moral is, panic. But even sure, but even then that's there's there's that's small crowds of people on campus. Right? If you go to your average political science class in Yale, you can actually talk about the world with students in a serious way, with people who have real disagreements with each other, and they're respectful to each other. They bring in their personal experiences, but they don't preface every sentence with as a so and so. Yeah. And so I actually what depresses me in a weird way is that that to me is a model of what we should be aiming to make our society more. Now, I'm not yeah. saying that it's perfect. I'm not saying there's no problems. I'm not saying that it'll be easy to turn the United States, which have much deeper problems than a college campus does, into that kind of environment. But it is actually a very inspiring example of very diverse classrooms, people of every ethnicity, every religion, sitting together, bringing in who they are, but without making that the sort of be-all and end-all, grappling with each other's ideas. It is wonderful. Yeah. And that exists at college campuses as well. Now, then there's also 
some of the excesses and some of the strange ways in which small groups of people can dominate debate. And I would say there's something similar about journalism, that there are cases of implicit bias where people really see the world through a particular ideological lens without realizing it. There are cases of very destructive, inflammatory opinions being given a big platform as long as they pretend to be left-wing rather than right-wing. And there's cases of delivering people up to the knife in, in extreme ways. To me, the most vivid example of that is an article in the New York Times about Emily Wenzhou. I don't know if you're aware of who she is. I don't think I know that case. So Emily Wenzhou is a Chinese immigrant. She pitched people on Twitter for her fantasy series, which was loosely modeled on the experience of indentured servitude in Asia today of lots of people. She got a half a million dollar contract for her fantasy series. Great success story. Person of color making it in the YA Oh, okay. Industry. I did hear this story, yeah. Somebody who got an advanced copy of her book left a very negative review of it on Goodreads, basically saying an Asian woman shouldn't be allowed to talk about slavery. It's not meant to be slavery. It's not meant to be a novel about history in the United States. It's not clear to me that the underlying principle that's posited applies in any case. This becomes a huge thing. This author, Emily Wanzawa, ends up asking her publisher publicly not to publish her book. And it's not published until today. The publisher says, we've paid half a million for this, but it's not important to us enough to publish it. No. I think, I think in the, the same thing. week, there was a black author who ha wrote a novel about, that uh, was set in Albania, but because he's not an Albanian Muslim, he didn't have sufficient standing to imagine what life would be like There's in that circumstance. Later, yeah. Yeah. Now, he, here's the thing that really upsets me. If you Google Amelie Wenzau today, first article that comes up is a New York Times article whose headline is Emily Wenzauer Accused of Racism. And if you read that article, you don't actually get an understanding of what the controversy is about. And so for the rest of her life, this woman will be tarnished as a racist in a context that even if you think the novel is problematic, even if you somehow think it shouldn't be published, is just utterly inappropriate. So there are examples of that, and there's very real victims from that. But I don't think that that's the default mode of the New York Times. I don't think that's the default mode of American journalism today. And we should also be clear about that. Well, Nick Cohen, very brilliant uh, left-wing yeah. British columnist for The Observer, I thought he had, a, had the perfect line. He said, cultural appropriation is culture. You know, one should be able to write about places one is not from as just a matter yeah. of intellectual curiosity and not be vilified for going outside of one's lane or whatever the other Vogue cliches are now in circulation. There's nothing wrong with that. And equating that, for instance, with blackface or things that are overtly chauvinistic or racist, I think is, is absolutely a, a, an excess of our, our culture. But you know, what's also interesting about this, and I don't, I don't know, I just remember this phenomenon when it, when it came out. There was this campaign, and maybe it was even enshrined into law in Germany, the right to be forgotten. Mm -hmm, yeah. You know, so the idea that if you're publicly shamed, your public shaming becomes the, the centerpiece of your biography digitally for the rest of your life, such as Emily Wenzel. And in Germany, I think there's a, there's a thing where that stuff can be taken offline. Or right. for some, it, it, what, how does it work? Does it sort of I mean, rejigger I'm, I'm, the I'm algorithm? I'm a little uncomfortable with it because yeah. it is you know, a form of digital censorship. I mean, yeah. enough, in many cases, there have been people accused of doing bad things, of corruption and bribery and... Yeah. Trade for the crimes. 
preventive invoked the right to be forgotten to get articles about those things taken down. Sure, like losing libel law in the UK mm -hmm. to sign yeah. yeah, so I, I, I mean, I think the answer to that is for mainstream newspapers and magazines to stick to their editorial standards and not to report on accusations of racism. Yeah. Even the titling of some of these articles can convey 90% of the problem. They're clickbait titles that'll use a term like racism, where the article itself might even be exculpatory. But if you read the title, you think this person has, you know, where there's smoke, there must be fire. And, and that, so I think those framing effects can exist more broadly. So you may have seen, you know, in the field of populism studies, there's been a big debate for the last years about whether the roots of populism lie in economic anxiety, as people derisively call it, or basically in racism and racial resentment. I think it's a little bit of both, and it also has to do with social media, and it's sort of a silly debate to try and say it's one or the other. But that's the way in which the debate has been led for a number of years. And one of the studies that supposedly proved that it was really all about racism rather than economic factors has an operation uh, thinks measures what racism is supposed to be in this context by looking first of all at attitudes towards trade with china which seems like quite obviously it has an economic component and then about things like i forget the exact thing but i think it's attitudes towards affirmative action for example right and so what is being coded as racism there is things that you may or may not agree with, but that certainly aren't what most people reading this study or reading the headlines that the Washington Post and the New York Times when write about that study would assume, would understand under the term of racism. Well, you also have this problem, people who are elevated to levels in, in journalism, whether it's editorial or sub-editorial roles, who really don't deserve to be there because they haven't put in the, the time and the experience and they haven't really plied a beat for many years. A lot of them are millennials. A lot of them come from this sort of who, who truly believe in cancel culture and the rest of it. And they are setting the news agenda or in some cases attacking colleagues and their own staff with whom they disagree and are painting with a broad brush of being completely beyond the pale. You know, Barry Weiss in the New York Times, for instance. Mm. I remember when the, the Slack conversation, the, the New York Times Slack channel right. got published, I think, in the Huffington Post, showing the reaction to Barry. We should, we should probably summarize what happened here. So Barry is a, a somewhat centrist, center-right writer for the New York Times. She came from the Wall Street Journal. She's, to my eye, meticulously anti-Trump, but she certainly defends Israel fulsomely. And she, on Twitter, in obvious celebration of a, an Asian figure skater's triumph, she said, quoting the Hamilton line, immigrants, we get the job done, or immigrants, they get the job done. And as luck would have it, the figure skater herself was not an immigrant, but she was the child of immigrants. And you know, then there was promptly uh, an auto de fe organized for Barry. Because on, she on was Twitter. otherizing. Yeah, she was otherizing her and, and, and then, appropriate. Yeah. Uh, she was doing I see, so, several yeah. sins. Con right. And, and the, 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 the core objective of the point was to push back against rampant racism and xenophobia yeah. and to celebrate diversity. Right. And it may have been done 
irresponsibly, cat-candidly, whatever word you want to use. But again, coming very much from a correct thinking position and you know, then the colleagues pile in to so, say, so then well, what, what was interesting about that moment? So, but but, but just to be clear, we, so then we saw on a published Slack channel that had been leaked to the, the Huffington Post of what the staff and other journalists and editors and copy editors and who knows who, employees of the New York Times were saying about Barry and the level of anguish some of them were expressing over her tweet was just, I mean, it was it was sanity straining. I don't. I mean, it was like I, there. There are people. There are literally people who are committing suicide bombings. Who I understand more than people who are anguished over this kind of thing. It's, it's, no, it's, not it's, like you know to even walk up to somebody, a colleague, and say, "Hey, you know, I think what you put on Twitter is pretty stupid. Let's have a, a an argument about it, but a civilized argument." And that, that, none of that happened. And it's no. also it's the sterility with which it's being done. You know, look, there are people who live to try and get other people fired from their job. Right. Right. I mean, I was a broadcast journalist for a spell. And, you know, if I said something that might have been poorly phrased or, you know, maybe on point, but on point in a way that with, with top triggered or, or provoked other people, you know, in comes Glenn Greenwald saying CNN fired so and so, but Weiss is still on staff. It's designed to get me sacked from my job. Instead of, hey, you know, that was a stupid thing to say, or, you know, oh, you know, why did you just put it like that? That's the culture, though, now. And, and that, again, that, is, that has completely infiltrated, and, and, and this is the, the extent to which the American people don't really know how the sausage of journalism gets made, the kind of, you know, punches that get pulled if you happen to be friends with somebody, but somebody, you know, on the right side who's done something wrong so the story won't get done, or if you file a story about somebody, but you know they're seen as being too politically part of the zeitgeist, and therefore even a, a perfectly legitimate evidence-based critical piece or profile can get squashed. I've seen this from both sides, outside looking in and inside looking out. And it's just, it's, it's getting a bit nuts. And it does. I mean, this is, again, it, 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 it engenders a reaction, an overreaction, from those who think they're being lied to all the time and that everything the mainstream media so-called is reporting or saying is false. And the Washington Post and the New York Times are part of this vast liberal conspiracy. I mean, look, one of the ironies in, in, in my experience reporting from the Middle East is every left liberal publication I know, including The Guardian, which is more left liberal than any counterpart American publication, the entire, well, not the entire, but the majority of the foreign correspondents tend to be center-right. It's the editorial side that's very left-wing. And the reason is, I mean, they're dealing in the reality of, you know, reporting on national security issues or terrorism or seeing what failed states look like up close or having to navigate the dysfunction of living in, say, Beirut, which is hostage to a, 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 an Iranian-backed terror organization and, you know, knowing how they have to pull their punches and self-censor. So people really aren't getting a full impression of, you know, there, there is a legitimate criticism of the press to be made. And then we wonder why, oh, Americans are slobbering idiots or ill-educated and ill-informed, and then they go and vote for somebody like Donald Trump. Well, yeah, whose fault is that, though? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's important to distinguish between mental frames mm. and conspiracies or deliberate falsification, right? So I think that you know, a lot of sort of Trumpists have this idea that members of the media 
are plotting with each other to undermine the president in some deliberate way or that they are willing to lie and cover things up in order to help the president. And that is completely false to the reality of how journalism works, where people want to get scoops, yeah. they want to outdo their competition, yeah. they want to have a juicy story. And that on a day-to-day -day level matters much more than their political ambitions or their, their political preferences and so on and so forth. Yeah. What is a deeper problem, I think, is just the instinctive way that people approach the world. The things they see and the things they don't, simply because of the experiences they've had, the people who are around them, the people who they talk to at the dinner parties. And that's not a conspiracy. It's not a deliberate act, but it can misshape how the media represents the world. It's what made it hard for some mainstream newspapers to see the dangers of somebody like Hugo Chavez or the dangers of somebody like Recep Erdogan. And, and that I worry about more, actually. Hmm. Well, gentlemen, we have spent two hours preparing a time capsule for our future selves. Let, let us see in two years or four years or six whether um, our concerns were um, completely vacuous. I hope they were, but I hope neither the right nor the left nor the Trumpian other poll, whatever that is, proves us to be worrying about things that are um, worth worrying about. I think. Can, can, uh, can I quibble can I sure. with yeah, you? Yeah. I know you're trying to wrap up. Yeah, go for it. I think four or six years is too short a time frame, unfortunately. We're not going to know whether or not we've vanquished this threat for a good long while. So for example, even if Democrats win in 2020, and mm. even if a great, reasonable, wonderful Democrat wins in 2020, it'll be at least until the primary elections in 2024 that we know whether the Republican Party doesn't has, swing further into has, populist nightmares. Yeah, has become yeah. properly Trumpified or populistified, mm. or whether it'll go back to whatever version the Republican Party was before Trump. So let's not declare victory too early. Okay. Well, so on that note, now that you pulled me back, of the current crop of Democratic candidates, there are only 400 of them. If you had to back a horse now, who would you back? And obviously, there are two concerns here. Who could possibly win and who, upon winning, would be a tolerable president? I'm not going to talk about who can win, but I would love to talk about how they can win. Mm, okay. And I think at this point, none of the candidates, with a couple of exceptions, are, are sufficiently defined, but we couldn't adopt this strategy. So if any of them are listening out there, please adopt this yeah. strategy. Here's the recipe. I, I think we make a mistake in general in politics when we think about it as a one-dimensional ideological space from sort of left to right or from left to moderate in the Democratic Party. In order to win, you have to escape that one-dimensional logic. So let me talk you through the two main issues. One is general economic issues and one is general social or cultural issues. So on the economic side, you have on the one hand people who are talking about socialism and who say that capitalism is the root of evil in this country. And then on the other side, you have people who basically saying, let's not rock the boat and perhaps we can slightly expand the earned income tax credit. And if Republicans want to slash corporate tax rates by 5%, we'll sort of keep them as they are. I don't think you win by being on any point along that spectrum. Instead, you win by saying, I'm a proud capitalist. I think capitalism has made this country incredible. I think that, especially if you're on the left, you need to celebrate that capitalism has helped 2 billion people around the world 
escape poverty over the last 20 or 25 years. But we also live in a system in which you and I have to play by the rules, and a lot of the rich don't. We, play in a, we live in a country in which some of the largest corporations don't have to pay any tax because they park all of their intellectual property in Bermuda or somewhere. We live in a place where if you go to a doctor and you don't have insurance, he can make up the price he's going to charge you. So I'm for capitalism, but I'm against crony capitalism. And I'm going to make sure that you get a fair deal and that we take on the ways in which the system is manifestly unjust. I think, so that, I think that could be imported into anybody's speech, and I invite anybody listening to use that. That was a great nugget of economic policy, if not policy, economic philosophy that, that had the, the ring of wisdom and pragmatism to it. Can, can I do the same for the cultural issues? Yeah, Let's please. Let's see if you agree as well. Please. Because I think on the cultural issue as well, there's sort of the... I guess what some people call the identity politics side, which basically says Democrats just need to be the parties of Latinos and African-Americans and stand up for these communities that are under threat from Trump and see themselves sort of self-consciously as doing this kind of group politics. And then there's a side which says, no, actually, to win the election, we need to win over these moderate whites and perhaps some of them are kind of racist. So let's not stand up for these groups too much against Trump. And again, I don't think that either of those ways of thinking about it is winning. One, I think, maligns what moderate whites actually are like and fails the moral test of standing up for people who really are under attack at the moment. And the other alienates a lot of the population you need to win the election. And so I think the right way of doing it is to say, when Trump separates children from the parents at the border, when he talks in these dehumanizing ways about Mexicans, about Muslims, about lots of other groups, that is disgusting, and it is disturbing, and I am going to defend the people that he's attacking loudly, without reservation, without qualification. But why am I doing that? I'm doing that because they are our fellow Americans, and because I care about all Americans equally. And some Americans are currently under attack, and they deserve the same rights and responsibilities as all the other Americans. So that's why I'm fighting against some of the policies of a Trump administration. It's because we have stuff in common. And even if we haven't ever realized the ideal in American history of making sure that everybody has the same opportunities and that we're treated as individuals, that's what we should be aiming for. And that's what I stand for. I love it. I hope you get a, uh, a side yeah, gig as a speechwriter. Yeah. <laughs> at least, I have to at make least up a write... fake birth certificate. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I actually, I mean, I, I'll answer your question specifically. I mean, the one candidate in the Democratic field who I think I, mean, I don't know if he has a chance, but I, I don't care. I, I just, I find him very intelligent and, and very principled, is Pete Buttigieg. Mm -hmm. I thought his performance at the CNN town hall was actually remarkable in that he faced some tough questions about a scandal that plagued him as mayor, which was related to race issues, the firing or the demotion of Right. Black police chief. I, I missed that entirely. So, um, yeah. Answered it, not, I mean, from a legal standpoint, but not legalistically and mm -hmm. not in, in, you know, politicianese, very human. And also made a great point, I thought, about immigration and particularly undocumented immigrants, which is that they put more into the system than they get back. They're not on benefits. We are, they are subsidizing us. And there's a great dialectical point that Democrats should emphasize more. That, yeah. Look, if you believe in you know, the, the, a thriving market economy and the American opportunity and, and, and all the rest of it, 
these are net positives, not net negatives to the system. But you asked about electability. I don't know. Is the country ready for an openly gay and married president? I don't know. I do think, though, that he stands a better chance of going toe-to-toe against Biden because whilst he's he is an intellectual, he's not an intellectual in the Adlai Stevenson sense. He's not too scholastic. Mm. He's very personable. He's very real. And I, I think Trump would, would almost trip himself up arguing against him. Uh, and of course, Trump is going to traffic in homophobia and all the rest of it to try and That, by the way, is him. why I don't think that Pete Buttigieg being gay is going to be an electoral liability. I agree mm. that there is still some real homophobia in this country and that might be a challenge, but it'll bait Trump in a way that, right. by the way, may not be good for the country. Yeah. It may not be good for the LGBTQ community, but it'll bait Trump into overstepping by making homophobic remarks yeah. about him, which I think would backfire on him. Sure. Mm. But, I, I could just be living in my liberal bubble, but I feel like the progress that has been made on gay rights and the, I feel like I've witnessed a complete evaporation of homophobia in American culture. Again, I could be, I could, <laughs> I, I could be isolated, but. Whether or not there's still some pockets of people who are sufficiently homophobic, but it would be a problem for, for gay and I, I, I don't know. I think I tend to share your optimism, actually. But one thing we should make, clear, which is that I think there's lots of things to be depressed about in this political moment, and Mm. I'm as depressed as the next person. But we have made incredible progress. And one of the things that sort of make me feel, and I hate this word gaslit sometimes, is our inability to celebrate and acknowledge that. I mean, the United States has always been an unjust country, and it's still an unjust country in many ways, and we have to keep fighting against that. But it's easier to fight against that if we recognize that we've made real progress on that front. And that's true for just about any minority you can possibly think of in this country. Right. And it's certainly true of gay people that they get a much fairer shake, perhaps not a fair shake, but a much fairer shake in the United States today than we did 20 or 40 or 60 years ago. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Well, on that note, gentlemen, tell us where people can find you online. Michael, what, where would you direct people to your Well, I would say Twitter, but given our discussion yeah, of well, that, it's inevitable. Anti-social yeah. media. Who are, who are you on Twitter? Uh, Michael D. Weiss. But um, I mean, I, I'm a columnist for the Daily Beast. I write sometimes for the Atlantic, sometimes for New York Review of Books, and still contributor to CNN. Yeah, that's, that's where you can find me. Cool. You can find me online at Yasha underscore monk, Y-A-S-C-H-A underscore M-O-U-N-K on Twitter, where I talk about how you should delete Twitter from your phone. And you can find me offline in my latest book called The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you both for your time. It's really been great to talk to you. This was the conversation I was hoping we would have. Until next time. Thank you.